If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. April, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on and congratulations on adding a TEDx speaker to your bio. I saw it's already on the website, which is pretty cool. Thank you. I know. It was this moment where it's like, oh, wow, I do add that to my bio now when I add it to my Instagram and my LinkedIn. It, was, it, it, it did have a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah, that's super cool. Well, yeah. before before we dive into what led to that and to your career right now, your original path going to college was journalism. And that's, I would say, in a similar category to what you're doing now. But what is it that put that bug in you where you're like, I want to pursue you know, that kind of career path? Honestly, it was very idealistic. I wanted to be the watchdog of society. Hmm. And I felt like I want to be somebody that helps get information out there that people need to make better decisions and, you know, to change the world kind of thing. So it was very Pollyanna-ish, honestly. And I think that, I still think that there's merit to that as a as a goal. Unfortunately, I think where the media has gone, it doesn't quite have the same ability to do, to deliver on that ideal. No. And so part of that, I got a little bit disenchanted early on and thought, oh, I'm not actually going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something else. And that's kind of where things shifted a bit. But um, sure. that was really where it came from. That and a passion for writing. I really love to write. And so my parents basically said, you know, if you're not going to have a normal job. You can't just be a fiction writer, for example. You need to have something that's going to pay the bills. So if you want to be a writer, that's fine. But why don't you do a career path with writing that will pay your bills so that you're not struggling as an artist right. for the rest right. of your life? <laughs> Did you see somebody like growing up that pursued any path similar to that where it was like it put that inkling there? Or was it totally just something that in your own, it was like, oh, that's something I like doing. Here's a practical way to apply it. Yeah, it was mostly in my head. It didn't really Mm. come from anyone else. I mean, for career day, I did follow a local author at one point, Mm. but that wasn't, it wasn't somebody I previously knew. It was somebody I sought out to look for somebody in the area who was a writer. But no, it was just something that once I took a couple of writing classes, I remember in eighth grade, and I'd always, I'd like to write before that. Mm -hmm. But when I took those classes, I just realized that I understood it in a deep way that I didn't the other classes I took, right? There was just this connection to it that I realized I had a special gift or special connection to to writing. Yeah. I guess what was the first time that you actually monetized your skill first before I dive into being disenchanted with it and pivoting a little bit? When's the first (laughs) time you actually monetize that skill and realize like, okay, this is viable. Like there's a path here. So first time when I was in college and I was studying journalism, I actually became a stringer. I was I grew up in Iowa. I was going Mm. to Iowa State University. And I became a stringer for the Des Moines Register, which meant that I was writing Ames, Iowa or Iowa State related stories for the the state newspaper. And for what I expected, they were paying me handsomely. And so I was pretty excited about that. I thought, wow, they're writing me, you know, they're paying me to do something that I really love anyway. 
this yeah. is amazing. Right, right. So there was a, yeah, it was a fun moment. So let's talk a little bit about disenchantment with it, because obviously you said there was a, you quickly realized like, okay, if I'm going to become a journalist, journalism as it stands, isn't this idealistic version of it. And this is a conversation I'm sure we could go on a rabbit trail on for oh. a long time about the <laughs> the world of journalism as it sits yeah. right now. But, yeah. you know, when you had that realization, like, was it something where you're like, well, now what do I do? Like, you've got the kind of background in your head going, I can't just go be a fiction writer or do something fun that I think I would enjoy. Were you kind of like identity crisis mode at that point? Like, am I going to be a writer at all? Do I pursue a different path? Did I waste my college education getting, you know, a degree in something like what, where were you at that point mentally? That's a really good question. There were a couple of others ahead of me who hmm. were a couple of years ahead of me in school who also bounced out hmm. and they had gone into PR. And so I already had seen that as a viable sideways step because people in PR often want people that are good at writing, people that understand the media. And so mm -hmm. for me, it was, I mean, I became a technical writer as my first PR job, where I was basically writing articles on behalf of construction companies, which is a funny thing, but Two Rivers Marketing is a very big ad agency, marketing mm -hmm. agency in Des Moines. And they have a, a ton of construction related clients. Yeah, because probably, you know, because of the where they are in the country. Mm -hmm. So I was writing all of these stories for these construction companies about how different construction crews were using the equipment to accomplish these, you know, grandiose things with bridges and tunnels and yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So so it was kind of a natural sideways step for me. And then from there I became a media relations specialist because I knew how to pitch media because I was pitched stories myself. Right. So yeah. it was kind of an easy, easy end. But I think it was more of a crisis of faith in humanity, which is going to sound really dramatic, but that yeah. was more what I had than a crisis of career choice in that what I saw happening to a lot of the reporters who had been in it to win it for a very long time was that they started to lose faith in humanity. They mm. became very cynical, very caustic, especially if they were doing things like I was doing at the time, which was crime reporting. Mm -hmm. The more that you see of that underbelly of people I think the same is probably true for cops and, you know, law enforcement, and other people yeah. that are dealing with a lot of the, you know, the dredge of society. I think it's very easy to fall into, OK, well, everybody's horrible and life is horrible and just kind of become dark and cynical. Yeah. And I didn't I saw myself already going there at a young age. And I thought, I don't think I can I don't think I want to lose that. Right. I don't think I want to lose that hope. Yeah. And so that was the bigger impetus, which I know, sound, again, sounds very, I mean, we're, I guess we're seeing I'm very melodramatic between my, I'm going to save, I'm going to save the world through yeah. being the watchdog of society. Like, <laughs> But that's every, I think that's everybody when they, when you hit adulthood is like you leave, I think for the most part, like you leave high school with this like idealism of like, now I can do, whether it's just personal where it's like, now I can do whatever I want because I'm out or I'm going to change the world. I can, you know, make mankind better, you know, and then real life happens and hits you in the face. And then you go like, <laughs> oh, neither of those things is a hundred percent accurate. And maybe I can, but it's not going to be as like, if it was that easy, everybody would have already done it. You know, like you start yeah. realizing those sort of things and, oh, I have bills and my parents paid a lot, you know, for rent, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But I am curious, like one thing that I really like about your brand specifically is you know, you address the fact that public relations does get a bad rep a lot of times. And for somebody listening who says like, oh, you went from journalism to public relations, like in their mind, they might go like, that's 
out of the frying pan into the fire, like, you know, that can be a really seedy world. You know, you're trying to make companies that are horrible companies sound really great, or you're trying to make a person who's not that good look good on paper. But your approach to public relations is a little bit different. How did you decide to approach it specifically when you entered that world? That's a really good question. So, I mean, I think to your point, I didn't do a lot of what you're talking about in doing the spin thing. Mm-hmm. And I w- and I felt like, oh, this is what I came here to do. Like, this is what I'm on the planet for. I don't like this. No. And so I actually, for a bit, did bounce out altogether. I actually left the PR world, left corporate America mm-hmm. and focused on becoming an artist. So I took a bunch of music production classes. I became a DJ. I really kind of just went in a whole other yeah. direction. Couldn't really make a living doing that, to be frank, and was forced back into it. But in coming back into it, I had a fresh perspective. I think I carried some of that creative energy with mm-hmm. me. And eventually it led me to realize that, okay, PR is actually a relevant and important thing for any business or entrepreneur or thought leader, et cetera. You, you pretty much can't get anywhere if you don't have the help of PR. Yeah. And what I mean by that, and I don't, and for the reasons you mentioned, I don't do any celebrity PR and I, and I don't do political PR because both of those tend to be more about fabricating realities than it is using what's actual and then communicating it. But in the case of entrepreneurs and businesses and startups, et cetera, brands, that's an opportunity to say, okay, they're doing something that they need to communicate with their target audiences because it's something great. It's something that's needed. And there are always going to be companies out there that do that. There are always going to be companies that aren't needed, Mm. that are not helpful, and I don't really want to help them. But if I have my own agency and I can believe in those companies, then I can actually use the good of PR instead of the evil of PR, because everything cuts both ways, right? Mm-hmm. And help those people who do have a new idea, a new invention, a new innovation, a new disruptive idea, et cetera, to make a splash, to make it a reality. Because otherwise, if you don't have the help, it's helping the underdog, because otherwise, the people that are already the, you know, the monolithic monopolies, mm-hmm. are you're never going to be able to challenge them. So in a way... I'm back to being able to help the world by helping these brands who have better, bigger and better ideas, but don't have the financial means to compete with something that's established, you know, the establishment or whatever. And that could be thought wise or money wise. But, you know, how do you break in? And and the only I really I don't know how to do in the same way without PR. And so that's yeah, it's an important it is a really important aspect of marketing. And I don't know what we do without it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the how do you break in, you know, and that's probably the question that on the flip side, like you've got celebrities and large corporations that can pay enough money to basically make anything true about them that they want, at least in the media's perception. Yep. Um, so when you're working with a company that is smaller or a company that is doing really good things, but doesn't have the money to compete advertising wise with, say, you know, fill in, I won't even name a brand to associate with like, but with a big dollar brand that can drown them in marketing spend, uh, what's the angle or approach that you're trying to find? And and when you're looking at a potential client, like what are some of the, the indicators that you can do something for them or move the needle for them, even if they don't have that multi-million dollar spend? So the NPR is the best place to do it because you can actually come up with a story angle that will cut through that if you can prove that the company is doing something, the challenger brand, if you will, is doing something that's 
disruptive enough or innovative enough or different enough that's needed enough, you know, you can do that either through having statistics or data that show that people really want this instead. They, mm-hmm. you know, they really want to, I mean, I'll, I'm just going to make up a, a bad example just for the sake of it. Just so we're not speaking too much in a vacuum, but let's say it's, let's say it's a, a challenger soda brand going after Coca-Cola or something, mm-hmm. right? And if you are offering something that doesn't have any chemicals and there's no cane sugar and it's got honey in it and it's, you know, those are the kinds of differentiators that if you lean into it because, and you have data that shows that 90% of Americans no longer want to drink, you know, carbonated sugar or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. making this up. But if you have those statistics, then you have a good story. Mm-hmm. You have, okay, people don't want to drink the thing that they're being handed in every restaurant. And here's a company that's trying to change it. Mm-hmm. And here's what they're doing. And they're delivering these innovative, you know, craft sodas or whatever it is and that are healthier and all natural. And so those are the kinds of stories that the media likes. And then you can make a splash. And then from there, those stories can get shared on social and you can create the buzz and it gives you a hope, right? Mm -hmm. You're still David versus Goliath, but at least, you know, at least you're David with some rocks. So, you know, otherwise you're just David standing there. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed someone a while back who was also in public relations. And one of the things that he talked about was, you know, the number one question that he asked clients is, why should anybody care? You know, like that, that brutal, honest question, which is why should anybody care about your brand? And I think for some, you know, they're so in their business or so within their entrepreneurial journey, especially solopreneurs. Like when you're a solopreneur, you're just like trying to keep your head above water. So like, it's hard to see what unique value proposition do I have? Or is there something that Mm -hmm. makes me unique? What would be some advice you'd give to people who are trying to audit their own brand and identify things that, you know, they might just take for granted. Like you mentioned, you know, whether it's getting rid of certain sugars or seeing that an audience wants a certain thing, what's the first step in kind of auditing themselves and seeing what they have to offer in a, in a busy marketplace? That's a great question. So I think the first thing is figuring out if you're doing what you're saying you're doing and if what you're saying you're doing is what people still want, right? Sure. It's sort of a two-part thing. I would say every company needs to keep evolving or they're going to get left behind. And so if they're not doing that kind of market research or if they're not doing that kind of, you know, R&D, I think that they're probably going to flame out. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the other thing that's very, the the harder piece of it, honestly, is that it's too easy to drink your own Kool-Aid. And Mm -hmm. that's true also of startup founders, even if they're, you know, they, a lot of times people start a company and they have this great idea and they think it's a great idea and they know it's a great idea and it's needed, but they don't actually want to look and make sure that it's not already being done because mm-hmm. they're so all in on it. And so they don't want to, they don't want to take the blinders off and go, okay, let's look and see, are we actually unique in the marketplace? And, or are we actually needed for the thing that we think is needed in the marketplace? And that's really hard to do, especially if you put a lot of energy, passion, money, time into something. Those are the hard questions that can be hard, really hard to ask yourself. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, going to therapy and having somebody ask if, you know, are you the common denominator between all the breakups you've had because (laughs) they all left for the same reason? It's like, oh, they didn't see I was great. It's like, well, maybe, you know, it's a little bit like on the brand side, like, is this maybe my fault? So it's hard to, it's hard to ask yourself that. And I think with marketing speak, 
you can get by with a lot of the fluffy, flowery, you know, we're amazing mm-hmm. language. But when you hit the PR side of things where you have to prove it to journalists who are skeptical, mm-hmm. who do ask hard questions, who do need proof and data, then the rubber hits the road. And that's where when we now do a trust analysis for new clients to make sure that whatever they're saying and have been saying and know to be true can be substantiated through examples, through case studies, through data, through statistics, through, you know, where how can we prove that you're doing what you say you're doing? Yeah. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is we pitch you to media, you get the interview, and then you get flattened. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. How often do you sit down with a client and find out that what they think they're doing isn't anywhere close to reality? Is that something that happens? I have to imagine a lot. Like you mentioned startup founders. Like I have to believe that happens a ton. All the time. And it's a very difficult thing. You know, you don't want to, you have to kind of break the news to them gently, right? Because yeah. again, they've- Like a therapist. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. they haven't slept in four years and they, you know, barely see their kids because they're doing this thing and they put all their life savings into it. And then you have to be the one to tell them that what they're doing isn't quite unique enough. Hmm. That is not a fun conversation. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so you have to be really careful about it. But it's also- if you can actually help them more in the long run, Mm -hmm. if there's something that all that, you know, because usually it's just a quick retooling. Hey, what if you just do this in addition to what you're doing? That sets you apart. Or what if we heighten this thing you're doing, but you're not marketing, Mm -hmm. right? What if we lean into this piece of it? So it's it's a valuable exercise, but it it is challenging. Yeah, like a therapist. (laughs) Right. What what do you think of this statement? Because I was chatting with someone recently and they said it's more 
valuable to fall in love with problems as opposed to the solution. And when he said it, I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all because I had my own version of what I thought that meant. And then he was explaining and he said that if you know that you help this demographic of person accomplish this goal, then you can come up with a thousand solutions for it. So he said, if your goal is to help uh, stay-at-home moms who are working virtually, you know, stay organized, you know, and that's your mission, you can create a software, you can create a printed journal, you can create, there's a billion different solutions and you can stay relevant and serve that demographic for the next 80 years, regardless of what technology comes out. As opposed to if you fall in love with a solution, like a startup founder creating a software, you know, that software might be obsolete in 20 years, but maybe two years, the way software works and they can't serve their base anymore. Would you agree with that statement? Would you agree that it's more important to know your overall why more than it is to know your unique tool or application that you use to solve that problem? Absolutely. Cause that's your guiding light, right? If you know what your reason for being is, that should always be what drives everything else, right? Mm -hmm. That should be what drives your brand, your values, your next innovation, your next hire. I mean, it should, that should be the, the guiding principle. So I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it too, right? I mean, the problems that you're solving are more important than the solutions because yeah. the problems are going to keep evolving also. <laughs> right. So that's another reason why not to fall in love with the solution because what might be the next problem that you need to solve, the solution you currently offer might not address. Mm -hmm. But if you're more, I, I love that. If you're yeah. more committed to continuing to, you know, solve problems for people, then you'll continue to innovate. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot yeah. since you brought it up. I mean, it's the I blockbuster really, like problem, you know, it's like, yeah, we are we love the solution of being a rental video store, you know, where you can go get VHS and DVDs and, mm -hmm. you know, versus we want to help make media more accessible to, you know, people in their homes like that would have led them into streaming sooner, you know, and same with you. Like, it's funny. I was thinking about it as you were sharing your story. It's like you have this overarching. I want to have a positive impact on the world. You know, I want to change the world by sharing stories and whether you go into journalism or music or PR, like you're still touching on that core value that really matters to you. So it's, yep. I keep thinking about it. every time I talk That's to people right. now, that whole statement right. keeps cycling through. No, it's true. And that is my reason for being. So it keeps manifesting in different ways. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about how um, things evolve over time and, you know, you, you've been doing this for how long? I think it said, on your site, almost 20 years, right? Years. Yeah, I'm right. dating myself, but I'm, Which, I'm only 25, so. There you go. You started at five. Great. <laughs> but uh, I am curious in, in this space, like a lot of what we're talking about, you know, authenticity, being true to yourself, like finding what you're actually doing. Those buzzwords have also become buzzwords, you know, like there's a lot of companies pushing for this is our authentic voice and our brand and they, you know, they'll release an ad campaign and do untouched, you know, models. And they'll go like, okay, see, look, we're a transparent company, you know, and like, they'll do these little visual things to try to try to appease all of that. And so even in the world of being, you know, this world of honest marketing, it's gotten kind of murky at times. And I'm sure you've seen over the last 20 years, like PR has evolved the, the way that, you know, we look at marketing, social media comes into play. There's so many pieces there. What are some of the biggest new developments in the PR space that have 
really thrown you through a loop and, you know, taken time to adjust to? Uh, That's a good one. There are a few. So on the consumer side, something that shifted is that you can't really get a client in most stories unless they're on an affiliate network. So if they're not doing Mm. affiliate marketing and you don't have an affiliate code to provide that outlet or that journalist, the likelihood you'll be included in a roundup is very low. Wow. Okay. Kind of insane. So it's now like affiliate marketing meets PR, but it's all kind of the same thing. And that's been a real adjustment. And, and, you know, something that we now actually offer affiliate marketing services. And that's affiliate marketing for the journalists? So basically what happens, and this is like, I'm really pulling back the curtain here. It's going to, it's going to upset a couple people, I'm sure. Basically what happens is if you go to, let's say we're looking at BuzzFeed and they have a roundup of best Mother's Day gift ideas and you click on those things, we will run through an affiliate marketing link. And if you make a purchase from that, then BuzzFeed gets a kickback. Mm -hmm. So they will get whatever percentage that company is granting them through the affiliate network. Does that make Mm, sense? Yeah. So it could be 10% or whatever it is of the final purchase. Right. But now BuzzFeed and other, not to call it BuzzFeed, it's not, this is not a BuzzFeed problem. It's just, they got thrown into the example here, but basically it's, that's what it is. So, so when you see all the gobbledygook in the code, when you click on it, it doesn't just go straight to the website. That's because it's feeding back to BuzzFeed. Yeah. For using that code. And then if the purchase is made, they get 10% of it or yeah. whatever the percentage is that's set. Yeah, I guess BuzzFeed doesn't shock me too much because they do so many lists like that. But does that do you see that happening with other news outlets as well? Like just like local newspapers, journal? Really? Uh, almost all the national. Not because okay. that what we're talking about. Here. Like a MSNBC or like a, a like, Forbes like, or. Like Business Insider has insider picks. Same thing. Gotcha. So for a company who might have a great product, if they don't have, so in the pitch to a Forbes or a, you know, or a business insider, that should be part of your strategy. From If you're pitching consumer stuff. The other thing that's shifting a bit that I'm finding interesting is that we now have some of those great journalists from mainstream media going to Substacks mm-hmm. and they're becoming Substack journalists. And I'm keeping my eye on that. It's still a bit in between, mm-hmm. but... And some of the news outlets are now trying to compete with Substack by introducing their own newsletters that are supposed to be independent newsletters and things like that. Um, So that's going to be interesting to watch, but that shifted a bit. And then the other really big change is that because journalists have been laid off and furloughed so much and now have way too many beats that they have to cover alone, they're accepting a lot more contributed content than ever before. Hmm. So a lot of the times that you pitch a story, they'll come back and say, hey, it's a great idea. Do you mind writing the story for us? We need it to be X long, X number of words and we need it by X date. And so that's great for PR. Yeah. But it also means that the amount of content that these outlets are featuring that's actually independently generated versus PR generated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's shifting dramatically. Yeah, it's kind of diluting the impact as well, I'm guessing, of some of these articles. Yeah, I've noticed that I work with a couple um, real estate people and it's difficult because one of the things I love doing when I'm handling social media marketing is sharing articles that back up some of the claims that, you know, 
that they make. And so when they're talking about certain stats in the market, I have to be very careful reading through news articles because nine times out of 10, when you read why the Utah real estate market is booming, you'll look up at the author and it's like a contributing real estate company that's selling real estate in that area, which is like going back full circle. Like it goes back to the state of journalism now where you have to make up for the lack of readers by doing more fin- like financially viable articles. So it's kind of a weird, murky, sketchy world in some ways, the it way is. that's it's come together. It is. Yeah. And I mean, what concerns me the most, and I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a <laughs> career path here, sure. but what concerns me is that with the credibility of the media going down in general, I mean, it's it's been a dramatic jump off in terms of yeah, trust is trust gone. The media yeah. is, is pretty much gone with that disappearing. And then, you know, heightened by the fact that we are seeing Oh, okay. So the media is featuring articles where they get money back for featuring these products. How objective can you be? Right. How objective are they? And so the biggest concern for me is where does that leave brands or entrepreneurs or thought leaders who need to get a message out there and build their credibility? Yeah. It's it's creating a bit of a vacuum because then Mm -hmm. you're just left with paid and owned media. So then it's basically like, okay, so everything is now for sale, but there's no independent source of data or information or news that we can trust mm-hmm. to know that it was, you know, okay, this company's actually great because it was in this article. Yeah. And so that's, that's really concerning to me. Yeah. Well, I think it's why you're seeing the rise of so many independent sources of information, not just news sources. Like obviously you have the Young Turks and like those that have been around a long time that have kind of been the runoff for that or a vice news, yep. which ironically, the longer they've been around, the more into the traditional media space they've become in the way that they operate. But then you also have these very strong, like we live in, um, I forget what book I was reading recently, but it was saying basically we're in the age of influence now. You know, we were in the information age. Now it's the age of influence. Who can get the most influence wins at the end of the day. And so you see Joe Rogan's, you see these podcasts with, you know, 40 million downloads a month that really could say whatever they want, bring in people, but they have audiences who, you know, for a certain demographic, you know, if I want to sell something and I go on Joe Rogan, that's probably going to do very well for my business. If I want to, you know, serve a certain audience and I go on to the Young Turks or I go on to a, you know, Ben Shapiro with Daily Wire, or I go on to whatever that audience is, it's going to help in a huge way for stand-up comedians getting on certain podcasts with other comedians is a huge thing. And now TikTok and all these different platforms. So with the democratization of media as a whole, like the fact that we're having this conversation and it has the potential to be seen by, you know, tens of thousands of people or millions of people, or, you know, depending on if BuzzFeed picks it up and says BuzzFeed smeared in podcasts, you know, but like, (laughs) you know, with that sort of movement happening, in your strategy, are you working on incorporating influencers or podcast appearances or pushing people outside of kind of mainstream media? Yes, I am. And I'm I'm trying to do more of it. It depends also on who the target audience is for those clients. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, I mean, I'm more than happy to push people towards something that's going to reach their target audience, mm-hmm. especially even if, you know, considered controversial. But I will say the other thing I want to point out about the Joe Rogans of the world is that I think that the reason that they have such a big following, and in fact, Joe Rogan 
following is far surpassed as a New York Times circulation now. Yeah. And I think the reason for it is because his credibility is intact because he is actually including both sides of the aisle. He's mm-hmm. talking to anybody. He doesn't exclude anybody. He doesn't. He won't let people pay for appearances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he doesn't censor information. I mean, I think that because he's doing that and letting people make their own decision and, you know, you can hate him or not. And, I, and a lot of people do. But the fact that he's presenting information, having conversations, letting everybody have their voice, their freedom of speech, and then trusting that the audience is adult and intellectual and smart enough to make their own decisions. And Mm -hmm. I think that what we're seeing with the media is a lot of people shoving their ideas and their point of view into news, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. And everything's become an op-ed and it leaves you as a reader or listener feeling like, oh, you don't think that I'm can make my own decisions that I don't have critical thinking skills, you know, that's, it's offensive. And so I think that people like Joe Rogan are appealing because we all want to think that we are capable of making our own decisions rather than being sheep. And, and it appeals to that, you know, to that, that segment of society, which is obviously uh, far surpasses the others. So yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's on both sides of the aisle. Like you're seeing, I mean, obviously people are always going to listen to who most closely aligns with them because we're tribal by nature. We're going to do that sort of thing. Of course. But you know, I, I just can't help but see, you know, I, I just see people blowing up outside of traditional media sources. So like when I think of PR, you know, it's funny, I was talking about getting uh, featured in Forbes. You know, we had Travis who started Guestio, our company, you know, he was featured in Forbes recently. And I was like, that's great. That looks really good on social media <laughs> and to say it on a podcast, like the actual Forbes article really doesn't matter because most people aren't going to read it. But once you say featured in Forbes, like there's still that traditional media credibility it tied into can, the current. It yeah. still works. Yeah, it still works. Yeah. I hope that continues. Yeah, I, I think at some level it will. Some of the institutional sites that have that prestige about them, I think it will, you know, and there will be ones that rise and fall and, you know, so on and so forth moving forward. I could talk about this all day. I know we're we're cutting near the end. So I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody that comes on the show. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Oh, that's a good one. I would definitely say what you know. Hmm. I think that, it, yes, it's great to know people, but at the end of the day, if you have a new idea and you have some something that you want to share and you have information that you can offer, I don't I think that can be shared without the who you know. I think that there's a way around that. So, and I think being your own independent person and carving, you know, your own path as a pioneer is much more important than riding on someone's coattails. Hmm. So I would definitely say the what Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm going to move us here into our random round, let people get to know you a little bit. And then I want to ask definitely about how they can connect with you. First and foremost, I got to know what profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt? Oh, that is a good one. Well, I, because I'm a hobbyist artist and musician, I still sort of fantasize about being a musician Mm. and actually making a go of that as a full-time thing. Mm. So, but within that, I think what I actually would excel at the most is creating songs for film. Mm. The stuff I produce is pretty cinematic and 
has this sort of three-dimensional, four-dimensional kind of vibe. And it's very, you know, scene setting. So I think it would be really fun to to create songs for films. Yeah, definitely. Or TV, yeah. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Brene Brown. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, an, it's an easy one. I mean, for current anyway. Um, I just admire her so much and I admire what she's done and how she's built her career and the messages that she's got out there and how she's managed to take things that are could be considered heady and niche and make them very universal. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, yeah, I sort of, I tell people I want to be Brene when I grow up. I either want to be Gladriel or I want to be, <laughs> I want to be well, Brene Brown when I, maybe a combination of both. You're only 25, so you've got time. You've got exactly. plenty of time to grow out of Brene Brown. That's right. That's uh, right. I'm, I got to ask this. I love throwing a curveball in this question because uh, someone like Brene Brown is obviously very prolific, has written a lot, speaks a lot. What's the first question that you'd be asking uh, when you're sitting down? Something that, is there something that she hasn't ever answered that you're curious about? Or would you just be curious to get? <laughs> I love got this because people always go like, ah, Albert Einstein. And I'm like, what would you ask him? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, I think I would want to know. I, what I really would be curious to know is if she feels like she's accomplished what she came here to do, or if she hmm. feels like there's still something that she hasn't been able to com- to complete that would make her feel like her mission was was complete. Hmm. That's a good question. If you do, let us know what she says. Um, if anybody connects me with Brene Brown, I will be your best friend forever. Perfect. Perfect. How do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your what's your favorite? Oh, that's a good question, too. I would say audiobooks and podcasts, mostly because I'm such a multitasker that I actually take in information. It's sound crazy, but I take in information better when I'm listening while doing something. Hmm. And so for me, it's a really good way for me to absorb because it it actually allows me to focus. I know it sounds a little nuts, but it's if I'm doing something else and listening, I actually absorb them the most. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Give me a glimpse of your morning routine. Glimpse of my morning routine. Well, okay, this is actually going to say a lot about my weird lifestyle. So I live outside the Grand Canyon on 13 acres and I have goats and three dogs and three cats. And so the morning is usually getting woken up. Well, as soon as I stir and I uh, they the animals know I'm awake, it involves one cat on my neck here getting pet until I have to sort of, you know, shove him aside and go do something else. Um, petting a dog with the other arm because she comes up. And then basically from there, trying to make coffee, get the dogs outside, let the goats out, and then check my slack and make sure nothing's on fire. And then basically straight to work. So it's, I'm not one of these entrepreneurs or business leaders that, sets aside time in the morning. I tend to work late at night and then mm-hmm. I wake up and I just kind of, it's like into the frying pan. <laughs> but, sure. But that's basically, you know, a, a bunch of animal management and trying to get some decaf coffee. I don't drink caffeine anymore, but I still really? get myself decaf. So it's like a ritualized thing. Yeah. I'm really disappointed because I thought you were going to say cat here, dog over here, goats right here. I was hoping they were the indoor goat. goats. That would have been a great, <laughs> great story. They, they sometimes let themselves in the dog door and you hear the tap, but it's uh, it's not a great idea to have goats in the house because they gotcha. don't have control over their bowel movements or sure. they like to they like to chew everything and 
I have a four-year-old, so I'm used to that kind of vibe. What is your go-to pump-up song? Go-to pump-up song? Lately, this is so silly, but it's been American. What? Ah, uh, shoot. Hold on. Let me make sure I get it right. I want to say it wrong. I think it's American Boy. Oh, uh, Estelle? Estelle, yes. yeah. Yeah, Amer- I love that song. Amer- American Boy by Estelle. It's on my, my car auto plays things off of my iTunes Oh, gotcha. That I don't actually curate anymore. Sure. And so somehow American Boy comes on, but every time it does, you'd think I'd be sick of it. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's really good. (laughs) It's very very catchy. What is something that you're not very good at? Saying no. Hmm. I am working on it. I'm working on boundaries and saying no, but I tend to kind of let the external define what's going to happen next. Mm hmm. And I tend to say yes to everyone and want to please everyone and then not end up making time for the things that need to get done. So I am working on it, but that I'm not naturally good at saying no. Well, thank you for not saying no to this podcast. I always laugh when people say things like that because I'm always like, wait a minute. In my mind, I'm always like, oh, they wish I would have said no to this. That's no, a, it's, no, a, no. it's a message. It's not, no. no, it's not that. It's just that's why I end up working too late. And, yeah. I, you know. And I no, I relate to that. Like personal time, and it's like, oh, I have to make time for people that I care about. I have yeah. to make time for myself. That should be included in people I care about. Yeah. You know, and it's difficult for me. Right. Well, and I have to imagine too. I mean, I'm I'm not in the same space, but I do a lot with marketing and branding, and so like, I'm sure like you, like we both get probably people hitting up all the time. Like, what would you say here? Or what would you do with this? And like a lot of unsolicited advice that you're giving out every day, which is, which gets pretty time consuming. Um, So I want to ask this last question here, and I want to give you a little bit more time on this as much as you want to talk about it. But I want to ask, what's the number one place online for people to connect with you? I mentioned your TEDx talk earlier. I think that's probably one of the number one things you'd want to point people to, but just give our audience a couple different places to connect with you, especially considering that we have a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners trying to change the world themselves and uh, probably looking for services like what you offer. I love it. Yeah. So probably the best way is trustrelations.agency, which is our website. You can also just email me directly at april at trustrelations.agency. And to your point, yes, on our website, we're going to have a landing page or we do have a landing page now for my TEDx talk. So you can do that or you could even just Google April White TEDx, you know, should get you where you're going. But the title of the talk, if you're looking for it, is Living United Worth the Fight. Hmm. So feel free to, you know, to to check that out. I think it'll give you a good sense of my backstory and, you know, my my passions as well. But yeah, it's been a... It's. I love that you pulled that out. I don't think I would have made that connection that it's about that I've always wanted to change the world and that's my reason for being. And it started as a journalist and it continued with music and it spilled over back into to PR and and then it's spilled into you know changing PR mm-hmm. basically into trust relations, which is the term that I coined. So it's all about in replacing this idea of a spin and trying to get people to believe something and instead actually being the thing and expressing what you're doing. Mm. And, and basically, like I say, the first rule of trust relations is you have to do what you say before you can say what you do. So it's all about that. But yeah, I think that, I think that it's, I'd love to, to chat with people about 
how I can help them be more authentic to themselves and their brands. And how do we share that with the world? Yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah, it's, it's one thing that's just I've thought about a lot over the last year is like we spend so much time asking kids, you know, and I said I have a four year old. So like I'm thinking more and more about how we raise kids, yeah. you know, and one of the things that I think about all the time is like we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think the better question is like, who do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and I think that that I, I think of myself like social media didn't exist. Like when you stepped into and we stepped up PR. I mean, social media didn't, you know, really exist. Like right. the, you know, the We're methods and means. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all so different, but if you know, generally what your vision is for the world and for yourself, like circling back, I mean, it's the, the means can change, but you're going to stay pretty much on the same path, pursuing the same goals. And so I think that's, it's exciting to see someone kind of living that out. And I, I really like the angle that you take on this and, you know, and the approach to it and about being truly authentic as a company before yeah. trying to brand yourself as what you yeah. want people to see you as. Yeah. And I mean, and I will say, you know, you even pulled out the point that the TEDx talk that I'm doing, once again, it's like trying to change the world because it's sharing some pretty personal information, mm -hmm. but I feel like it's really needed. Yeah, And, you know, there are some really alarming statistics right now about the number of people who are in support of seceding from the union. And it's not even just in the US. Right? I mean, it's yeah. literally, it's like, it's crazy mm -hmm. that the number of people that are pro-secession yeah. But in addition to that, 76% of, of people around the entire world, not even just in the U.S., feel their countries divided. So yeah. this is just a moment where I saw, okay, there's a, this is really alarming. Because yeah. if, we, if all these divide and conquer tactics, all they do is make us weaker. And the more that we fractionalize, the less powerful we are, and the more that we're at the mercy of whoever is behind all of that, right? And so, yeah. you know, not to go too far down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, we have to fix it we have to figure out a way to fix it and we have to band together. So it's a five alarm fire as far as I'm concerned. So it's, it was more, more important to me even than trying to, you know, I mean, trust relations is related to the topic. So it's in there, but that wasn't the impetus. It really yeah. was that this message needs to get out there about, about being united. Well, thank, I mean, thanks for getting the message out and thanks for doing it on this show and for letting me, uh, take some of your time today. I really appreciate it and and love having a new connection with you. Love what you do, your brand. And I know people listening will as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.